Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network, where you'll find most of your tennis information. This is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings with our mentors. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which may be the vehicle which can take you through life's journey. Our guests provide pro- guests could provide the roadmap for that journey. Each week I will be interviewing those tennis mentors, coaches who have paved the pathway for many tennis players and coaches. They have authored papers and books on tennis and on life, and they continue to give back today. Who should you expect to hear each week? Well, on the first week it's normally Alan Fox. The second week is Chuck Reese, the third week is Dr. John Murray, the fourth week it's usually Scott Williams or Linda LeClaire, and uh, on those fifth uh, Thursdays that come once in a while in a month, well, stay tuned. You never know who you'll find. Uh, We've been blessed over the last three years to have many outstanding uh, coaches on, and we've also had um, people from the USTA, USPTA, uh, PTR. Uh, so you'll never know who we'll have. And while I mention it, uh, I should mention that um, next week is Dr. Maurice, the third one. On the fourth Thursday, it's Scott Williams' turn to be on the, uh, this month. But uh, Alan Fox is not going to be able to make it. By the way, he said, uh, well, our, our coach isn't here yet, so I'll repeat it after. But um, he's going to be on uh, the fourth Thursday rather than the uh, first Thursday of the month. So I would like to thank the Yellow Ball Network and CEO J.P. Weber for hosting the Tennis Network. And if you're not following We Coach Tennis on Facebook, you're really missing out on some useful information. Besides... Our weekly conversation, the Almighty Willing, you will be able to continue reading my views in Florida Tennis Magazine. And as I've previously expressed, if you disagree with me, please email me at coachdenise.fhstca at att.net. That's coachdenise, D-A-N-I-S-E, dot F-H-S-T-C-A at att.net. Who knows, you may see your views on Florida Tennis Magazine or hear them on this network. Uh, We really, uh, you're going to hear my views all the time uh, as I perceive them to be the truth. And uh, I know that some people disagree with me. And if you're willing to discuss your views, uh, I think that's great. And uh, I'll try to get a format uh, for you either on um, you know, our coach, uh, Denise Sharon Tennis Blessing broadcast or uh, in my Florida Tennis Magazine articles. I would like to uh, also uh, mention that uh, Florida Tennis Magazine uh, is also on Facebook now. So if you're not subscribed to Florida Tennis, don't ask me why, because it's not just a uh, Florida Magazine, uh, tennis does go through Florida and uh, from all over the world, really. And uh, Jim Martz, uh, for the last 26 years, has been producing the magazine, uh, does a fantastic job with it. And uh, if it's not in your pro shop, you might want to look up at uh, Florida Tennis Facebook uh, page and uh, you might see some of the articles of myself or Jim Martz uh, on the Florida Tennis page. Of course, you're going to always also see my articles and uh, going to uh, FHSTCA, uh, Coach Denise, uh, and find them there too. So we look forward to uh, sharing those information with you. Uh, Besides, uh, like I said, besides my weekly conversation, 
I also, uh, the Almighty Willing will continue to be right in there. Uh, as a matter of fact, this issue of Florida Tennis Magazine, uh, my article is Changes Dangerous and Necessary in Tennis. And um, the uh, article is actually a three-piece article. Uh, we usually don't do that in Florida Tennis Magazine, but I think the uh, subject was important enough, and I'm not smart enough uh, to be able to put it into one article. And uh, Jim March agreed to uh, let me do that in uh, a three-piece article. Truthfully, um, I've been getting caught in some information, and uh, I hope I've already submitted the second uh, article uh, to the magazine. The third article, truthfully, is uh, a bundle of notes all over my desk, and um, hopefully I'll be able to get it all into uh, the third uh, uh, article. But if not, I don't think it's the end of the world that we go longer because I, th I think one of the problems, uh, I believe, that uh, tennis uh, has is uh, not listening uh, to each other. And uh, I think that uh, it's important to uh, do that. So uh, we want to hear your views, too. I've been hearing some of the views. One of the views I heard uh, that I'm uh, not crazy about, I have to admit I do resemble some of that. Uh, I have some somebody say that uh, I'm getting old and I seem to be uh, – uh, my article is referring to some of the same uh, people, and uh, I, I admit to uh, I've been blessed to know some great people like our coach uh, today, Coach Chuck Greasy, who's going to be on the broadcast. Uh, I resent the fact of getting old. I, uh, I do admit to uh, being older than most, uh, but I try hard not to get old. Uh, I know I want the best of both words. Worlds, but I think there's something I'm glad to hear young coaches expressing views. I want to keep hearing that, uh, but we don't have enough mentors uh, in the game, people willing to speak up and say what's important. Uh, I see our guest is on today. Everybody who knows uh, the great coach uh, Chuck Greasy knows he speaks his view, but some of the people that you don't know, let me just mention a few things uh, that you know, that maybe not know. A four-time National Coach of the Year Award, uh, five-time coaching Grand Slam champions. Uh, he's actually authored six publications, nine players uh, coached the Grand Slam finals, uh, 11 to uh, top 100 players in the ATP and WTA. And he has 30, which I suspect he's probably the most proud of. I know I am with my uh, people I coach, but 31 former uh, players and assistant coaches that are coaching. Um, and, of course, he's been uh, coaching, well, I guess about 37, 38 years. He's the winningest coach and uh, ACC uh, history. So, Coach, uh, I did get a couple of uh, questions. Um, I asked if anybody had something they wanted to ask you. I did get a couple of response. Truthfully disappointed uh, that I didn't get uh, more response. But I, uh, we could go into a discussion on uh, – what you are uh, doing and uh, not uh, what you're leading is the, um, the American Tennis Patriots. So uh, after uh, those couple questions, and I'm sure um, well, I wish we would have had more people getting involved and asking more questions, uh, we don't. Uh, how are you today, Coach? Sure, sure. And if any time uh, you can't hear me, let me know, John, because I'm in the middle of traffic and I got some headphones on, so... I hope I'm coming in there loud and clear for you. Yeah, you are so far, so let's pray that uh, keeps uh, happening. Um, we, we did have a couple of questions, and one of them uh, uh, was, uh, when do you uh, suggest that uh, 
what do you suggest for conditioning? Uh, the one thing your reputation has gone is the, that the coaches at uh, the teams at Wake Forest were always in the best condition. What do you suggest some things to do to, for tennis players to be in good condition? Well, John, you know, uh, one of the th- that's a question that you can answer in a lot of ways, but one of the things is that our our our, our sport certainly needs, I think, a better defined season um, for our youngsters. Um, you know, we might we might have a better defined season, and then there could go some type of periodization a little bit better. Uh, I would like to tell the people out there, as far as the conditioning, uh, if, if you could do this, you need to try, if you can, to make a, a like a clock-like calendar, like you would a clock, 12 months, 12 uh, numbers on the clock, and try to pick out four times or maximum five times a year that you would like your youngsters to peak. In other words, there's big events like a state championship or national, whatever that might be. Uh, but there's there's times where you want for your youngsters to peak. So during those, uh, as far as conditioning is concerned, um, <clears throat> what you want to do is in each one of those, maybe have a six-week period where you, after rest, you go into a training period. And uh, active rest, I believe in active rest for all youngsters. I I don't believe in just completely laying off. The one thing about kids is, boy, they they bounce back. They're like, they're not like adults where, you know, they, uh, they, their bodies can take so, so much, uh, when I look at runners, and my daughter's a 14-year-old cross-country and runner, oh, my golly, the workout she does. She's 14 years old. They did, if you can believe this, they did 16 400s the other day, 400 meters. And <clears throat> it's amazing how tough the kids are and what they get acclimated to. So we're not – we're out overworking any of the kids at all. But I want to get to answer the question. I wanted to say if you could break your year into five – maximum six periods where there is about a six-week period of you training hard, having active rest, then training hard, and toward the end, say a week or two weeks into that six-week period, you should do plenty of sets and points and get a lot of reps in and repetition of playing sets. I, I've told youngsters for years, you need to be playing eight to ten sets a week. If you're not playing eight to ten sets a week, you're way behind with the amount, the match count, and the amount that you need to be playing. So play that many practice sets. But then when you get into the actual competition of those six periods, you should play matches that you win, a tournament is important for the first tournament after coming out of a rest that you carry the trophy home or you have success. That could be the Little Sisters of the Poor Championship, the CYO Championship, the City Parks Championship, or it could be something of, you know, of more, but it needs to be something where the youngster has success. Then build up to a crescendo where the big event is about the third week in and then have, this is the key thing, if the youngster comes out of that big event, whether it's the Southern Championship, State Championship, if they come out with a loss or a non-successful, always have an easy tournament or some easy matches planned immediately after that crescendo. Now, if they win the tournament and they do great, you shut it down and let them go to a rest period with Always let them go to the rest period with confidence. Never take a weakness to the shower, Jack Kramer always used to say. For years, I had that that, uh, sign in our locker room. Jack Kramer, never take a weakness to the shower. Well, you never go to a rest period on a low. Always make sure that your youngster has won something or had a good 
event. Then they go to the rest period. If they haven't, you've got to try to make sure they have something easy. Then they win. Then they go go to the rest period. So in answering about the fitness, that is is what you do during the competitive area. Now, if you have a season like a high school season, you have off-season conditioning and you have in-season conditioning, there is a chart that is fantastic called Hans, H-A-N-S, Sales, S-A-Y-L-E-S, Adaptation Chart, okay? Hans, S-A-Y-L-E-S, Hans, Adaptation Chart. Now, this chart shows that in training, and this is important if you're, if you're a coach out there, <clears throat> When you train the kids really, really hard for two or three days, there's sort of an alarm period that goes off where the kids for about day four or five will get worse. Now, the bad coaches get afraid and they back off right there. But if you will train through that little downslope, the kids take a big, big jump up, and usually through day five through eight, nine, ten, they make a big, big jump in their fitness, and then they hit a wall. When they hit the wall, the chart says it's time to recreate. Now, that's the word for recreate, right? Recreation, well, it doesn't just mean goof off, but recreate. That's where you go to cross-training or rest or whatever. You wring the sponge out. You give a rest, and then you go through the same process. Now, any coach that is, John, you were a basketball coach, and you remember the days that, boy, you were trying to get your teams ready to be able to play basketball, and, oh, my golly, this amount of suicides and things. We all know, as coaches, over a period of time, you know how to bend but never break. You bend the players, you push the players, but you don't break them. And everybody has a little bit different level that they can go to, but you bend them, but you never break them. And the last thing I want to say is for tennis training, my book is called Coaching Tennis, and my total tennis training book is has the first period, has a lot on anaerobic training and anaerobic conditioning. Anaerobic conditioning, the best running or tennis are 400-meter runs for the right balance of, of the ATTPC system and the anaerobic system. Now, you train, you can do over distance about one or two days a week if you want to run a couple miles and things. But then the rest of the time, every other day, you should be going to the track. There's nothing that beats going to the track and running 400s and 200s. That gets your kids in tip-top shape for tennis. And as the season gets on, what you do is you start doing a lot more sprints. And I do shorter sprints like at the track. You know, you do the old basketball suicides and practice and those type of things. But, again, and then here's about competitive week. When you get ready to compete – I'll train the players up to 48 hours before. I'll push them pretty hard. Like, we play on Saturday, and yesterday we went to, we call it the pain field. It's basically the guys did six 400s yesterday, which was Wednesday, and we're getting ready to compete on Saturday. Today we'll do some sprints, but we'll back off and let their legs get a little bit of a rest, but again, I think I've answered a lot of questions there about the fitness. The other only thing I haven't answered about fitness is weight work. We do weight work three days a week in the off season. During the season, we do one day a week maintenance work for strength. But we continue to train with weights, lightweight with tennis players, lightweights, multiple repetitions. Don't get into coaches. Don't get into heavy bench pressing and things like that. You can do that a little bit, but you want reps. You want probably 10 to 15 reps. If, if, you're, if you're lifting for strength, you'll, you'll lift three to five reps or something like that. But you need, for flexibility strength, you need multiple repetitions with 
lighter weights if you're doing weights. By the way, I would not have kids touch weights until they're 15 or so with the boys. Girls, maybe lighter weights, hand weights. But the boys, I I let them do body weight push-ups, pull-ups, uh, crunches, dips, and those kind of things until they get to be about 15 after puberty weight work. I, I go pretty hard. So, John, that's a lot answered there uh, on fitness. But uh, here's well, the deal on fitness. You know, uh, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Tennis is the hardest sport there is. It's a running sport. Whenever parents say, wow, my kid, I want them to learn tennis, I, know, I said it's a running sport. It is not It is not a sedentary sport. So fitness right. is always the edge, but the way they're cutting the sport up now, John, you don't want me to get started on that, but they're cutting well, the we'll get, We might get into that a little later. But I'm glad you brought up uh, uh, tennis, the book, because you did cover a lot. But the truth is there's a lot more to uh, be covered, and it's in the book. The book's broken up into three sections, the physical third, the mental third, and the the emotional third. And, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. John, I just, I've got on page 13 in my book. I know exactly where it is because I've referred to it too much. In 1980-81, when I was the U.S. Junior Davis Cup coach, I ran, there was a couple very top players that they wanted workouts for the summer. On page 13 of my book is a seven-week running program. Now, I've had college teams call me and say, I use that even in the spring. It's got my players perfect shape uh, for tennis. It's on page 13 in my book, it's a seven-week running program, and then a cross-section of a week how to uh, to go from to weight work and strength work and agilities and to mix in the anaerobic, heavy anaerobic training is on the other pages, and it explains flexibility, strength, anaerobic endurance, and, you know, I mean, these are contrasting paradoxical statements like flexibility, strength, and things but we, we, we name those in tennis, you know, speed and agility, flexibility, strength, anaerobic endurance. So it's, it's in my book. Folks, still get it on Amazon. It's still out there, coaching tennis. And if you, especially if you're a high school coach or a young coach, you don't have to be a, a college coach to uh, read this book. Uh, all the tennis pros that worked for me and the coaches I've been blessed to have, they were all had this book. It's that important of a book. It's uh, one of the books uh, with the Florida High School Tennis Coaches Association when we did the first uh, uh, certification for team coaching. Uh, it's one of the books that uh, Human Kinetics uh, agreed with us, which was important, and we gave points for for certifying. So if you're a young coach, if you're a um, uh, high school coach, especially, do yourself a favor. Please go out there. Like I said, it's broken up in three sections, and uh, it's just uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there. So, no, I don't think you went too far with that, Coach, because you, there's a lot more, and the best way to get it is uh, through uh, the, the book itself. One of the questions that I did get, and uh, and uh, Wes Bowler, who has a great uh, Facebook site with over 15,000 coaches on, and I don't know how many uh, hundreds of times with different opinions, uh, some of them were worthwhile. Uh, unfortunately, many of them uh, were nonsense, but that's what life is about, and it's up to us to go search and evaluate and decide what's useful for us and not. And that was the question, um, what's more important, the tennis player, technique or tactics? you want to tackle that? Uh, no, it's, it's a great question. But, um, you know, this, this, let's go to technique first. One of the things I used to do with young pros, I was able, I was a senior director of coaching, um, at where I worked right after we got back from Thailand. Um, and 
And the thing is, I'm not allowed, I don't think, to mention the place, give it a plug or anything like that, but uh, it, was, it was a wonderful place. But one of the things I used to ask the coaches, as I said, okay, so how does a person learn to get a good stroke here? Do you go mechanically, like take your racket here, do this, do this, do this, do this? Or do you say, I want you to hit the ball over there with top spin, and I want the ball to go out of the court? All right? In other words, outside-in learning or inside-out learning? Well, the answer is both. Some, some people see, some people are kinesthetic learners. Other people are repetitive learners. In other words, left brain or right, right brain or left brain. Kinesthetic learners are your right brain learners. These are the people that can play piano by ear. They feel the court. Uh, I heard a great story about a good player one time. I don't want to get all sidetracked here, but they labored with the technique on this approach shot that they were trying to learn. For some reason, they just could not get the technique down on this, being able to hit a slice, one-handed backhand approach shot. And the coach said, look, I just want you to hit that chair over there with underspin. Zip, perfect. <laughs> once, he, once he told them what to do, they were able to execute it. So the point is some people learn from the outside in. Other people learn from the inside out. The outside in, um, you, you have to do the repetition. You have to do things. I mean, we're so lucky now. We have a video. And you know, John, I've been in tennis 50, hey, that's gee whiz. 55 years, and I've never seen myself hit a ball on a video. You know, I, you know, I, well, I have, but you know, but when I was competing is what I'm saying. When I was competing and things, I never got to see myself because I played through college and then a little bit after, but we didn't have videos. We did. Now you've got videos. We used to walk down the street following our shadow. I used to call it my, uh, my Garfield Park or Dr. Sid E. Park's videotape machine was my shadow in front practicing my strokes, or I would get in, you would get in front of a mirror. Well, the point is now to, <clears throat> so strokes are tactics. Here's, now, there's, there's more to this. Before the racket revolution and before technology came in, it was uh, the strokes were really, 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 really important. Maybe twenty to thirty percent more. If you didn't do the work on your stroke mechanics with those old wood rackets, forget it. But once they brought the technology out, you could take a player. In other words, with the old wood rackets, John. If you were at the fortieth percentile with a stroke, you were going to stay at the fortieth percentile. But with the technology, the 40 percentile people went automatically to the 70th percentile. Now, they didn't go to the 100th percentile, but they immediately took an elevator to a higher level. <clears throat> now, here's the other thing. The, the frustrating thing as a coach is players don't see themselves. They only feel themselves. The very frustrating thing for me has been like volleys. I can't tell you over and over and over and over again the technical skill on a forehand volley for these kids coming into college is horrible. These forehand grips, they hit with an open grip or open stance in a in a closed racket face instead of closed shoulders and open racket face, and it makes you crazy. So this week, John, I got out two or three wood rackets. And I've had the guys practicing volleys and learning how to volley correctly with a wood racket. So the point I'm making is there was a time, I would say, technical skills used to be 65 to uh, to uh, tactical skills, 65 to 35. I think now it's probably 35 technical. Tactical, I think it's 65. And with the tactical, here's – it's, you know, I do my things with the how, where, and when, the physical, the mental, the emotional. The physical part of the game are the skills, the physical skills, the conditioning, the stroke work, all those things that you work over and over and over and over and over and over again. However, a lot of times,
sometimes you can neutralize bad technique and hide it with high, good technology, with, with technology. Now, the, the tactical skills, wow, has that become important? The Wardlaw Directionals, again, are in my book. Uh, shot Selection Strategies, in my book. Momentum Tactics, Managing Momentum. John, I am, and I'm not saying this in a braggish way, I am the world's expert on momentum control. And I say that because folks out there, the first. anywhere else in the world that momentum control has been taught and talked about. There's a guy in England that came out with a book after I visited there in 1991. The guy is probably at my seminar, so he came out with a book on momentum control. So the, the tactical, you have the technical, the tactical part, and then you have the emotional part, which is all about being clutch. And uh, so to answer the question of the person that sent it in, uh, I think that right now it's probably 35% technical, and I think it's 65% tactical and being clutch. I really do. And the reason I say that, if you watch the top players right now, there's some guys that have strokes. I'm going, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> that wouldn't fly two bits later. How are they getting away with that? Well, the technique on the stuff, now, that's, I would say the top 50 players in the world probably have the whole ball of wax, but there's a lot of players, college players, oh my gosh, John, it would make you cringe to see the technical, the lack of technical skills on volleying primarily, and then the serving has been, I just don't understand, well, I do understand I've got my theories on surge of serving. If you had a serve in the old days that was at the 88th percentile, you were dominant. But because of the racket technology, if you have a serve at the 88th percentile, it's an average serve now. You have to have one about the 90, 93rd, 94th, still doesn't make a difference. 95th, you're over the hump there. But the, re- the biggest thing the technology has done is allowed, allowed returns of serve to neutralize serving. And most people think, oh, the big rackets helped to serve. No, it didn't. It didn't help the serving. It helped the returns. Helped the angles you could hit. Allowed you to hit over every ball. You used to have to slice a lot and things like that. So right. I hope that answers your question there, John. Yes, it does. And by the way, you talked about momentum, and uh, you had Alan Fox on last week, and you got into momentum a little. <laughs> he sent me an email afterwards and told me to uh, uh, sit there and tell you he said hello because you were the master of momentum. So, uh, <laughs> well, you're not you're not just you're not just bragging. There's uh, a lot of us that agree with what you're saying. I, I don't mean to uh, even you know, but. But here's the thing. Momentum is the most powerful force in sport. It's the most powerful force in one's life as well. But I now do talks, and I will consult and do talks on momentum control. I have eight simple to to learn, very hard to uh, to, uh, put in and and to interject into the, the what you do because we're training we're changing a lot of habits the interesting thing about momentum when people are winning they do almost every one of my rules without knowing they're doing them when they're losing they do everything backwards and the key to winning is to be able to do those things that you do when you're winning even when you're losing to turn that around or it's so hard to turn it around a simple thing like and this is just an observation, but folks out there, when you're losing, isn't it true that you see your own bad and the other person's good? And when you're winning, you see your good and the other person's bad and your opportunities. Wow. And it's a little, there's little things that you do automatically when you win that you don't do when you're losing. But what momentum control tactics do is they allow you to make good conscious decisions on your tactics so that you do proactive tactical work that is the same work that you do 
to be successful, even under pressure, even when you are not comfortable doing it, even against players that you've been losing to. And it, it absolutely works. Once people get it down, it works fantastic. Coach, I've been uh, – I'm going to uh, just ask you to comment on something because I've been blessed to uh, have you uh, as the highlight speaker uh, at our workshop, and you've gone over uh, the last 20% project uh, – well, last 20% coaching was in the project then. And we've been blessed to have uh, Ashley uh, Hobson there last year and, uh, you know, people Tremendous say about the people I associate with and everything, but tennis is a, a game that's, you know, technical, tactical, it's mental, it's emotional, it's uh, physical. Uh, it, it, it sometimes involves spouses and parents and uh, By far planning. The sport, There's so much about it. And uh, I see that you uh, and Ashley – you know, uh, and I talk about mentors. I tell people they don't have to be old. Don't think of mentors as as old as me. Or anything, but you and Ashley, and you you got Pat Atchabury with you, who's uh, trained so many uh, people with the ATP and WTA, and young Chris uh, Emke, uh putting on the two-day workshops in San Diego and in, down in Bradenton. I'm assuming that's going to be at the Inspiration Academy. Can you just talk a little bit about that before we get into the next conversation? Well, first of all, the battle now is not about information getting out there. You know, Ashley, first of all, folks, one of the best technical coaches I've ever met in my life, Ashley Hobson. I, uh, if you, your youngster has a problem with stroke techniques of some type, get them to Ashley Hobson. He sees everything. My strength in coaching is uh, the motivation, the te- the tactical part of coaching, the fitness. Those times, I'm I'm this guy is a master technician, master. And as far as a human being, uh, you would never want your child with a better human being. So I got to give him that plug. And then with Pat Etcherberry, my golly, come on, he's coached 52, I think it's 52 Grand Slam. You know, uh, coach Grand Slam champions. He's the ultimate fitness uh, guru in the world, and and he's he's uh, just been fantastic. But here's the point, John. There's nothing new under the sun right now with the way. I don't know how everything's going to settle out, but right now it's not about information. When you and I were growing up, we waited for a month for the right. World Tennis Magazine to come out. And I would sit up and I would look at these pictures. How is Rod Laver holding that racket? What is he doing there? What is that? And we would study. It would just want, we were so hungry for information. But now the information's out there on the internet. So it's not about information. It's about finding. Uh, it is about finding the right information. But it is also in the application of the information, and then it's developing one's hunger to search and to seek the answers themselves. I wanted to tell all of the listeners out there that I am presently reading The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle for the third time, and it is marked up like nobody's business because, folks, with, with everything that's out there, I think that, that the meat and potatoes in that book are just brilliant, and it's something we need to see. As parents, I'm going to have my youngster. I'm sitting right now at the ballparks with watching all these kids practice baseball. My son is baseball. He's crazy about baseball. Well, I'm watching all of them practice right now. But the point being is that I want my son who's 12 and my daughter is 14 to read the talent code because it basically goes through how youngsters get good at things and repetition is the mother of skill there is no way around it but here is what is more more importantly it's repetition that is instigated 
and it fires from the person. It is not the repetition that is forced by the coach. The youngster has to fire his own ignition switch. And and uh, go watch, read this book. It is brilliant. So the whole trick is how do we get our youngsters to the place where they fall in love with the sport of tennis enough to where they'll go to the backboard and do it again and again and again and again. And, and Daniel Coyle has this thing. He says, this one excerpt says, fail, fail again, fail a little better next time. And it said, but by failing the repetition, and he goes through the whole process of how motor learning happens and what happens in the myelin tissue of the brain. So the point is, here's the thing, John. It's not about information that is out there. It's like, it's so, it's like drinking water out of a fire hose. You need to ignite your RAS, your reticular activating system. Folks, go look up reticular activating system and understand what that is. It's the law of attraction. It's the hunger. It's the filter that allows your brain to seek and to find the answers that the individual is looking for. Daniel Coyle gives the best example. He uses, he says, look, teachers in America act like, they act like uh, waiters in a restaurant bringing the answers that the kid wants, and they serve them on a platter to the kids. Whereas in some cultures, they say in Japan, like, for example, they give the kids the wrong answers so that the kids will get frustrated and then they'll hunger for the answers. And uh, how do you do that in a plentiful society? How do you do that in a spoiled society? How do you do that when the kids don't need to be hungry? <clears throat> That's the trick. That's the whole trick to coaching. Oh, your original question was about the last 20%. Look, the last 20% seminars are about these kind of things, momentum control and about motivation and about the ignition switch and about how to get your youngster turned on through hard work to do the hard work in all of those those things they need to. You know, and however, you've got Pat Coach, why you Coach, why don't you get a quick drink while I lead this into the, the next topic? Because I, I do, I know you want to talk about it. But speaking of, uh, it's amazing that we're on the same wavelength. Uh, he also wrote a book, The Little Book of Talent, and it's 52 tips. Uh, it's his second book. Well, he's written many books, uh, improving your skills. And tip 10, and as I think, sometimes I think if he wonders if he followed you around sometimes. Tip 10 is. Honors the hard skills. And that brings me to my article in Florida Tennis Magazine, which uh, is Change is Dangerous and Necessary in Tennis. And uh, it's really a, a takeoff of uh, Mark Gillen's um, Does Tennis Need a New Match, which was in the previous uh, magazine. And the truth of the matter is there's a lot of discussion. Uh, we coach tennis with J.P. Weber, uh, real tennis coaches with Bill Patton, uh, Wesley uh, West, uh, Fuller uh, group, uh, like I said, over 15,000 coaches in there um, t- talking about uh, changes, problems. Ashley Hobson gave us a great, I asked him, you know, do you want to tackle how do we get change it and who's to blame? And, and, I, and I said to him before, and I always tell people, this is not that I got your broadcast. And he says, no, I'll speak on it. And he says, the organization's to blame right at the top. And he went through how and why and everything. Uh, and, of course, those of you that uh, know I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, Javier P-A-H-E-N-G-U-Q-U-E, your Google and Facebook, he talks continuously about the problems. But the article I'm trying to address, and I'm trying to sit there, and I think – 
Uh, as I state in uh, the article, uh, I'm not sure who said it, but freedom just doesn't belong to the faint of heart. It belongs to the strong. But I'm not sure that he or she was talking just about arms. I suspect the statement includes being strong enough to understand wrong from right and to continue to try to better each day. And I think that those of us that owe uh, tennis, and, and I include myself in that, uh, I've written other articles about people like uh, Chuck and Dennis Vandermeer and uh, that took uh, an old uh, basketball coach and uh, told him it was all right to go into tennis. But I consider myself one of uh, Chuck Creasy's uh, tennis patriots because I think I have to sit there and try to ignite a conversation. Uh, and for many reasons, some people are afraid to speak or not. But uh, I think we have to speak. I think we have to be strong enough. Uh, and and uh, as I state in the first part of the article, I don't know if tennis is any different than what's going on in America. Uh, I see us being pulled apart. Uh, and uh, and I think it's our own fault as a nation that uh, we just uh, let uh, you know people take control. And I think some of these organizations they just assume so much power that they stop listening. Uh, Coach, I know you well, have ideas on this. In my next article, I use well, some of your solutions and mine and others and i've asked and i ask in the article uh, if you have opinions to present them so tell me about well, yours one of, the, one of the one of the things that we have that's the strength of the weakness is everybody's ability now to state their opinions publicly by writing whether it's facebook or articles or anything it's my golly, you know, I, all my books that I put out there, I had to get publishers and everything back in the old days. It was really the one, the first book text 10 years. Now, people, you can write a book and self-publish. Right now, you can get on Facebook, and I always say everybody's a hero on Facebook. You know, I mean, you can state your opinion. You can get them out there any way you want. And the thing is, so we have a lot of information. There's good things about it. There's bad things about it. But here's, here's the thing about change. You know, sorry, my earphones just fall fell out here. Okay, can you hear me? All right, you there, Coach? I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? All right. Y- yes. Okay. Well, here's the thing about change. Here's a great quote. I think it's a Thomas Jefferson quote. It said, "Matters of method, okay, matters of principle stand like a rock. Matters of method." Go with the stream or blow, go with the wind. It doesn't matter. Matters of principle stand like a rock. Matters of method go with the wind. Now, while we have, because we have a lot of ways to, to get our opinions out there, I really, I really believe, I really believe, John, that we have a lot of people in leadership positions that should not be in leadership positions because there used to be a natural pecking order. Are you there with me still? Yes. Yes. Okay. There used to be a natural pecking order that started on the playground that if you were a loud mouth and you just wanted your opinion out there, you got it smashed down your throat or or you had to earn earn your way if there's a pecking order. That's why I've always been for the pecking orders of the playground. And I'm one that really thinks that we've messed that up by, you know, self-esteem to everybody. Everybody's a winner. Everybody wins trophies. Everybody. Well, no, you know what? They're not. Not everybody's supposed to be a leader. Not everybody's supposed to lead the charges. We see that in politics. We see it in school systems, we see it in coaching, in the sport of tennis, we absolutely have people that should be the leaders, but absolutely we have some people that have no, no 
way whatsoever should they be leading our organizations. Now, I won't name people, but I will say this. This is the one move that the USDA has done that's awful. They started the marketing promotion, the marketing movement. They started going after probably, what, 20, 30 years ago, I guess, 20 years ago. Marketing our sport became more important than the history, the heritage, and sticking to the principles of the sport. So I am appalled at what is happening right now as the marketeers have just basically taken over our sports. Now they're all panicking because they don't see the numbers. They don't see the money. They can't sell the products. Oh, my golly, sports like pickleball are taking over. Come on, give me a break. Tennis should be, will be around another 100 years if the marketeers would just get the heck out of the way. But they are goofing it up so badly. And here's, here's the point. Once the damage is all done, nobody's going to have a way to clean up the mess. And these marketeers, John, I'm just going to tell the listeners this. Folks, go to ITF under Google. ITF, go to gambling money, and then put in also whoever that name of the guy is in charge of the ITF and read about the ITF getting $70 million last year from the gambling industry. Why? Coach, if I can interject there for Coach, can I interject there for a minute? Because it was pointed to me during the Miami Open that watch the the, uh, scores coming up, how fast. And I, the Miami Open was a great uh, event. Uh, Some of the officiating wasn't so great, it was a little slow. Uh, but I believe the problem is pointed to me. I did watch it and I didn't time it, but I think the scores came up faster than I ever seen them before. Which brings me to the question: Is uh, the chair umpire more? He thinks his job is getting that score to the gamblers more important than watching the other officials. I used to teach the chair how to sit there and make sure he could take control of it. And so you can't blame it on lines people alone. We all make mistakes. This is, we're all human. But the chair should have been catching a lot of those things, and I think the chair was too much into getting that score out. Yeah, and I've only got a few minutes, but let me just connect the dots here, folks. We're talking about the marketeers taking over our sports. You know, and bad leaders. Why do we have bad leaders? Because the marketeers, have, we've enabled and promoted the marketeers to run our sport instead of the historians. Instead of the great coaches like the Wayne Bryans, the Pat Harrisons, you know, the uh, Robert Lansdorps, the Jack Sharps. These great, great coaches that are out there should be running our sport. And what we do, we turn it over to the marketeers now. Yes, the gambling industry is deep in bed with and intertwined with tennis. No one knows this, but do a little research, folks. You will see they even sold the Davis Cup and the Fed Cup to a company about three years ago, and then they took it back after about six months because it had got so much outrage. Now, the point is, that's how far along it is, and why? Because tennis is the number one most gambled on sport in the world. Why? Because in 128 draw, you have 127 matches and 127 gambling opportunities. Pathetic. Every tournament, at the tournament in Houston, if you have 32 draw, you have 31 gambling opportunities. And guess what? They bet on who's going to hold serve, who's going to hold set all over the world, and what do they need? They need the information. So anyhow, the point is, my point is that this is why they're bastardizing the fundamentals. What we should be standing on principle with is the scoring system, the history, the heritage, and we should be standing on the principle of these. Yes, try to promote the sport. Yes, individually. But the more we turn it over to what has happened is we've given freedom to the marketeers 
to do what they wanted to, and we've taken the freedom away from our local our local people and our, our uh, people in the trenches, our coaches. We've taken away their freedom. And the, the, the bottom line is we need a very tough person in there to straighten this mess out. We, we, if we don't, our sport – I want to make one quick point because we're almost running out of time, John. My daughter goes out and runs last night across uh, track me two miles. She did her personal best, her personal record. Well, you know what? It's on a stopwatch. She knows exactly how fast she ran every lap. She knows exactly how she did. For years in tennis, we have only judged our improvement based on who you beat and what event. You, it's rivalries against certain players and then tournaments as heritage. And, you know, guess what? Players, they are not counting points like the kids, like the parents do. But here's my point. When you do the abbreviated scoring, when you do the bastardized scoring system, when you do, I call it fake tennis scoring, when you do that type of scoring, the kids do not get an accurate barometer even about who they beat because it is so, it is so random. The, the tiebreakers for the third set, the no-ad scoring, all this is random. It gives random results the kids never grow and they did because they don't know where they're at so the point is john is wow we need leadership do we need leadership bad you know and i, I yeah just, we uh, need I, I we need people to realize that uh uh we need marketing but we need a coaching the skill has to go on how many people watch a team that isn't doing good i mean look at the trouble we have in miami with baseball uh this year they had the lowest attendance in the, uh, ever in a game if you don't have, if you're not playing a game, if you don't have the skills, so we can't ignore the skills. We can't ignore the the great no, coaches no. out there. We have to let them sit there and develop players. If we stop developing yeah. players, then eventually our sport is not going to be able to survive because who, who's going to want yeah. to watch it? We want to watch That's it right. now because we have great talents out there. But we have yeah. to. We used to go through the, our colleges. We got to make our colleges a, a minor league again. Going through, going out to sit there and produce American players. If we don't, eventually, we uh, we're going to have problems in there. Now, I used the yeah. Billie Jean King format when I was uh, uh, tennis coordinator for the World Scholar uh, Athlete Games. Why? Because we had time restrictions where we were. I mean, we had the best student athletes from around the world there, but we were limited. We didn't have the greatest tennis players there, but it was a great, great event. And I've had people say, didn't you use that at the World Scholar Games? Yes, I did. I think for old people, uh, I think it's a great thing. But if you're going to develop players – uh, we have to have the coaches develop the players, and uh, we're not well, going to we do, do it. What is competitive, competitive tennis and social tennis need to be uh, separated. Tennis versus competitive tennis. And last thing I want to say, John, folks, Chuck Creasy at gmail dot com. Just Chuck K R I E S E, like Bob Creasy, but with a K K R I E S E at gmail dot com. Let me know if you want to become a member of our American Tennis Patriots. I'll get you on our closed website. And we, folks, we're getting our whole constitution together. It's going to be exciting. American Tennis Patriots, we're going to be part of a, a bigger movement, a bigger organization, but that is coming up, and that's exciting. But we're battling. We want to save tennis. We want to make American tennis great again. And I think the great thing about the organization is you'll have a voice there, and I think that's what we need. I mean, we need to sit there. There's a difference between deliberation and negotiation. I mean, this is probably look what's happening in our country now that we negotiate something and nobody gets to read it. And people are voting on that. We have to have discussions about that, and we have to get these governing bodies to listen. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, it, it, we're going to have to have an organization to sit there and go out and offer 
ideas to them and uh, and have them consider and not be afraid to. I'm for change. Don't get me wrong. We need some changes. But if you don't stay by your fundamentals, you have a problem. I, I go back to basketball and John Wooden, and when you said, when you get in trouble, go back to the fundamentals. I mean, and this is what we have to do. We owe so much of this game to the the great players and coaches out there, and I think it's time we start listening to them. Those that want to speak, that we've got to start listening to them. I thank you for listening to the broadcast. Uh, I ask you to come back again next week. Tell your friends a great thing about Blog Talk Radios. If you can't listen live, you can listen at any time you want. I will post this. Uh, have a blessed week, and I look forward to talking with you again next week. Bye-bye.